if your riding style is 70% street and 30% dirt, you could be expected to buy what's called a 70-30 tire. But what does that really mean? And is that the right tire for your planned use? Well, I highly doubt those ratios will ever deliver the best tire for your riding style using those alone. In fact, there's some other factors to consider that are far more likely to get you on your best tire for your riding style, and they have nothing to do with those ratios. They have nothing to do with reviews or what your friends are riding. Today, I'm going to speak with Continental Tire in the U.S. to find out how tread patterns are designed, whether they're done with artists or computers, or maybe a mixture of both, how the tire compound affects traction, and why tire inflation may cause you to lose blocks off your tire and a bunch more other things. I'm also going to get to test out my theory on why ratios, just like I said, are misleading to say the least. Also coming up is David Peterson. He's going to talk about his tire iron bead breaker, which I'm sure you've heard on this show before me mentioning at the start of it. He is a, a tire changing fanatic and he's got some great insider tire tips for changing a tire and making it so it's easier to spoon on and spoon off. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bee Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hitstead. Dr. Gregory W. Crazy. Bar. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schlatt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. This is Edward R. Murrow. We're going to talk about flying saucers. We're going to talk about them from the standpoint of reporters. Not as comedians, not as sensationalists. For the past three years, a large number of perfectly sane and reliable people have been involved in this flying saucer business. Even those of us who have never seen one have become involved. We read about them, talk about them, wonder about these reports of strange phenomena in the sky. Well, the flying saucers that we're talking about today are the two that are on your bike, you know, encased in black tread-covered material we assume to be rubber, but who really knows? 
If you think about it, tire information can be a lot like information about flying saucers, in that so much of it is misleading and follow the leader type stuff, marketing hype, and and downright well-intended but wrong information. So it's no wonder that when we shop for a tire, we often see all this confusing and abundant information about them. And then we look to others to tell us what's going to be best on our bike when really we should begin with ourselves. My name is Jeff Reed and I'm with Continental Motorcycle Tires and I'm the Eastern Region Brand Manager. Jeff, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. So when it comes to tire classification, when we're looking at that 60-40 or 80-20 or or whatever it is, when we're shopping for a tire, what exactly Mm -hmm. is that telling us? Well, it's trying to give you the the consumer the idea of whether this tire is primarily a dirt tire or primarily a street tire and what percentage of either category, whether it's 60% dirt and 40% street or whatever, but it's trying to give the consumer some idea of the applications for that tire. But it, but is it really saying anything, I guess, is what I'm after? Because you, you'll see 60-40, you, you might see 70-30. I mean, we're, we're mm. talking some finite changes there. Let, right. let me ask you this. In your experience, where does that classification come from? Where do those numbers come from? Who makes well, them? Well, it's mostly a marketing decision as to how they're going to call it. What happens is when the designers go to start uh, building a tire, they, why the product managers would then come up with a... Uh, a book, so to speak, that says this is what we want this tire to do. We want it to have, uh, you know, be quiet on the street, primarily for the street. Um, You know, we want it to work on these bikes and they lay out the parameters for the engineers to come up with uh, the design. And somehow then, of course, it's always with tires. There is no, let's say, Swiss army knife of tires. So they have to come up with, okay, well, how much dirt, let's say, ability can we get away with and still have something that wears and handles decent on the street. It's, it's definitely a, a tough target to hit when you're talking on the adventure category, dirt versus street. So when we're looking at, like, for instance, a, a 70-30 tire, let's say that the tire's marked at 70-30, one could mm-hmm. assume that, let's say, it's street. So it's, it's biased towards the street, 70% street, right. 30% dirt. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. one could assume is if my riding style is 70% street and 30% dirt, this could be the perfect tire for me. Yet, when you go to ride it in the dirt, you may find that the tire is absolutely horrible. Like, for instance, if you got into mud, and I think that would go with just about any tire mark 7030, you'd find the tire fails incredibly. So sure. w- what does it really tell us? Well, and that's it's a hard one to put your finger on because when you say 7030, so primarily street, meaning you want it to wear good on the street, have good grip on the street, it's going to have, let's say, less open area. And when you have the open areas, then, of course, the tire works much better in the dirt, loose surfaces, particularly mud. So it, it's really hard to find that, that, again, that Swiss Army knife of tires. So uh, like, let's say a 70-30 tire like our TKC-70, you know, we don't necessarily call it a 70-30. 70 just uh, was the marketing name we picked. But, but I think it's pretty safe to call it a 60-40 or a 70-30 tire. And it has a solid strip of rubber down the middle of the tire with no um, 
no brakes in the tread, which is really good for mileage. Unfortunately, it doesn't have that loose surface grip like you would with a more open tire, like the TKC80, for instance. So um, it is really hard to find a tire that'll do everything. You know, probably the close, in my opinion, the closest thing we have is the TKC80. But then, of course, you give up some of the street wear. It works good on the street, works good off the road, but you give up the street mileage that you would get with a more, let's say, a 70-30 or more street-biased tire. Well, when we're looking at percentages, the percentages or the ratio, I should say, I almost see it as a better description looking at the percentage. So the 70-30 tire, I think, would be more accurately viewed as, okay, it's it's 70% as good on the street as what a full street tire would be, and it's 30% as good in the dirt as what a full dirt tire would be. That would be, to me, make a, more sense with this ratio. But, yeah. but having said that, if you get a 50-50 tire, which is, to me, or to a lot of people, I think would say, okay, well, that's the tire for our a dual sport rider or for somebody who's an adventure rider get a rider get a tire that's good you know just as good on the street as it is on in dirt well in that case if you look at his percentages it's really a horrible combination the 50 50 so you know it's good at neither one yeah yeah that's i think you pretty much hit it because you're right on the 70 30 stuff sure it works great 70 percent on the street but yeah 30 percent on the dirt yeah when you think about it that's not a super high percentage so um, which I guess, again, there is no magic, um, no, no, uh, oh, what am I trying to say? No, um, you know, magic wand or a tire that's going to be perfect in all conditions. It, it is a compromise, you know, both in design and application. Um, you know, let's say like a tire, like our TKC 80, uh, you know, works great off-road, you know, it has really good street manners, but sure, it's not going to wear, like a tire like the 70 or a trail attack two or any of the other tires out there they're more street oriented because those more street oriented tires because the reason they work better on the street is um the reason they work better on the street is because they've got much more rubber on the road and less open area and that open area is what makes the tire work good in the dirt but it's also what kills the mileage on the street so it, it's tough to find that compromise and so when we're looking at tires, and if somebody's out there mm-hmm. looking, trying to decide what tires for them, I, mm-hmm. I, I think, and I'm going to put this to you, is sort of what I imagine is that the only way to really tell how good a tire is going to be in, in the dirt or mm-hmm. how good a tire is going to be on the street is looking at that actual tread pattern. It, it's, a, it's almost a hands-on thing. You've got to look at the pattern and decide for mm-hmm. yourself and say, okay, this is an aggressive tread pattern. This is definitely mm-hmm. going to be better in the dirt than what a non-aggressive pattern is. Oh, I think you're exactly right. That's it. You know, as the rider consumer needs to look at it and, you know, think about, you know, exactly what you just said. The more open areas is going to be great in the dirt, but okay, no, I'm going to give up some street performance and vice versa. Yeah, that makes total sense. That's a good way to look at it. Now, if we're looking at the 70-30 tire, if you were thinking, okay, well, I do a very small part of my riding in the dirt, mm-hmm. maybe I can get by with a tire that's mainly street orientated. Now, that mm-hmm. that's, makes a lot of sense, except that there's one school of thought that would say that when you get into the dirt, what you really want is the most traction you can possibly get because that's going to be the place where you need it the most. I mean, on the street, if you ride, you know, safely or ride sort of cautiously, you could ride with just about any tire on the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I was thinking uh, a few years ago, I was at the KTM owners rally in uh, Taos, New Mexico, 
and uh, Jimmy Lewis was doing a little uh, writing clinic and was talking about that very thing. And, um, you know, because riders, of course, want a tire that lasts forever, but, you know, will climb dirt mountains and, you know, it really just doesn't exist. And he was saying that, yeah, you need to pick the tire for the area you want to have the least trouble with. So if you're going to be riding, and I'm sure he put it more eloquently, eloquently than I did, but but sure, what he's saying is is to pick the tire for the worst conditions you're going to encounter. So if you're going to be doing some pretty serious dirt, gravel, some uphills and some rough stuff, then you need to pick a tire that's going to be safer in those conditions and give up a little bit, um, you know, in the other case. In this case, we're talking dirt. So, yeah, you're going to give up a little street performance. But like you said, if you ride, you know, conservatively, you know, you're going to be fine on the street. But when you get off road, especially with these big, heavy adventure bikes, you need all the all the help, all the traction you can get. So, yeah, lean towards a more aggressive, uh, more off road oriented tire. So would would you say, and this might be tough for you in your position, but would you say that that ratio is sort of, it's a waste of time to look at that and use that as a reference for a tire? You'd be better off to compare tread patterns? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, and we try not to live so much by the, you know, market something is this or that kind of tire. It's more, you know, here's here's this tire. Here's it's a radial construction or it's a bias belted construction. And, and yeah, let the consumer look more in and a good example, I think exactly what you're saying. When we do the uh, the motorcycle shows, the uh, Progressive International Motorcycle shows, and we have a kiosk with all, you know, all our best selling or new product tires on there, and I have the adventure tires, and people want to ask, you know, was well, this a 9010? Is this a 8515? And, and uh, I say, well, here's how I look at it, and I'll show them our Trail Attack too. Uh, which is mostly a street tire, but has some pretty aggressive uh, grooves, very deep and more on the set or on the edges. So I say, well, this is more of a street tire with some dirt road performance. Here's our TKC80 on the other end, which is really good off road, but still works decent on the street. And then we have the TKC70 that's somewhere in the middle, you know, without specifying, well, this is 6040, this is 7030, you know, without getting into the numbers game, just kind of showing them this is more street this is more dirt near somewhere in the middle well you mentioned the tkc80 in in my mm-hmm. mind the tkc80 should be marketed as a, a 9080 for off-road mm-hmm. streets you know it's it's 90 percent off-road it's a fantastic tire off-road and it's a fantastic right. tire on road too being a knobby the downside is the wear right because once sure. you run a knobby you're obviously not going to get the mileage out of it as you said less uh less meat in the middle there is going to mean more wear sure yeah, that's exactly it. So, yeah, you're right. And that's why it is really hard to put exact numbers on tires for sure. When they're designing a tire, when when you guys decide you want a tire, and we talked about this before, really what it comes to, the, the, uh, the idea for a tire often comes from the marketing, doesn't it? It does. Uh, you know, we'll say, hey, you know, maybe maybe it's something we see our competitors doing and saying, hey, somebody's got something new that it's, you know, we're losing some market share because of this other tire. And you know, we need something that uh, meets this or answers this question. So the marketing department would start start the book, let's say, here's what we need, and uh, send it to the engineering department or the product manager, rather. And then they start to make up the book saying, okay, well, what are we really looking for? What's the price? What's the target audience? And, uh, you know, start to develop the parameters that go into making up the design. So I've always been curious when it comes to designing a tread pattern, are there 
like, how do they do it? Are there, are, is there tried and true tread patterns that the engineers know, okay, well, these work really well, or is there a, a scientific aspect of it where they say, well, according to the computer, you know, it comes up with this pattern as being the ultimate pattern to cover this sort of use, or is mm-hmm. it somebody looking at it going, I really like this pattern. This is very cool. Yeah, I think it's some of all of the above. Um, you know, looks certainly play a little bit of a, a part, but not as much as the actual performance. And it's not necessarily computer generated. I think it's done more with, uh, you know, experience that, uh, you know, I'm not in the engineering department, but but that's how I see and talking to the guys, how they come up with it. You know, we might start with, uh, you know, like front versus rear. Let's say we're talking street tires. You know, there's there's a typical way to run the front tread pattern versus the rear because they're doing two different jobs. So you kind of know going into it that tread patterns need to go a certain direction. And then certainly you have to come up with something for the adequate drainage or in the case of the off-road tires with adequate space to get the, um, you know, the, the grip and the loose surfaces. So, um, but the interesting thing I think is how that works is once they get a few ideas or a direction, then, uh, they take a, a raw tire that looks like a slick and then they'll actually hand cut the tread patterns and then start to test and I think when you really, when they're actually testing, that's when they can start to say, okay, well, how's this tire for noise? How is it for wear? Because every little nuance to the tread design, you know, as far as the angles and, the, you know, if it's a street tire with uh, a lot of grooves, the angles of the grooves and, um, you know, maybe some undercuts in the groove have a lot to do with how the tire is going to wear, uh, how it will disperse water, um, how noisy it will be. You know, does it get noisy as it wears? Does it work just as good? Uh, fresh as it does, you know, almost worn out. So there's a lot of testing that goes in, um, not so much just, you know, computer design and say, oops, here's a tire, let's start making it. There's a lot of, a lot of hands-on uh, with that, that testing. They must have some baselines to go on too. I mean, I'm sure they've got, you know, your tires that have sold very well, that have, you know, done very well overall through right. the years. And they probably use those as sort of a baseline to work off of the yeah. new tire. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. And one thing that's kind of interesting in our uh, hypersport and sport touring line, we really got away from, we always used to do this continental look that was kind of a shark fin, we called it. And, um, you know, we the tires are the attack series, so we had this kind of shark fin look and uh, real aggressive looking tires. And then we started to realize that there was, uh, they looked great, performed great, but I think we can go, or we think we can go, farther in performance and so the sport attack three and the road attack three are the first tires in that we've built that are don't worry about the looks what's the way to make it perform absolutely the best and so we've gone to uh, more of a backbone type tread design where there's a solid strip down the middle with no actual grooves that cut across which helps with the wear which actually is fairly similar to our tkc 70 come to think of it so uh so yeah, it's all of the all of it goes into it. The mix uh, into the mix, the looks, the performance, what they've known has worked in the past. Maybe there's a um, it's a continuation of a line, so we want to carry on some of that heritage. Um, so yeah, kind of <laughs> all of the above. So there's quite a, a bunch of variables there as well when you're talking about mm-hmm. a tire. I mean, you, you see it when you see reviews. You see reviews on tires all the time. It, it'll depend sure. on the bike that somebody's riding, the style of ride, uh, the style of sure. rider, uh, you know, the terrain they're riding. And there's so many variables. I mean, it would be impossible to say one tire is going to work great on all the bikes, I assume. 
Yeah, that's true. And that's what's, again, that's a challenge for the designers is to make a tire that works on everything. Um, you know, a lot of bikes have, you know, well, not a lot. Of course, every motorcycle has its own steering and suspension geometry. And, you know, some bikes are harder on front tires and some are harder on uh, rears and, you know, vice versa. And some bikes have certain characteristics that need to be tuned out, uh, you know, steering characteristics. So, yeah, it's pretty difficult to make a tire that works uh, in all conditions on all bikes. So, yeah, it's definitely a tough uh, uh a, a tough one to handle there was i don't see us doing it so much anymore but there used to be uh tires that you would see like let's say you looked in a distributor catalog that would be listed um you know a brand x tire here's your standard replacement model and here's the one specifically for yamaha r1 or here's the one specifically well in fact we do in our trail attack 2 series we do have a tire specifically for the F650, F700 GS BMWs, and then we have a general replacement one. So, and what that means is that tire was tuned especially for that bike. So there's something about the geometry of that bike that that it needed its own tire. So would you say that bike shouldn't be run with a, a different tire then? I wouldn't say shouldn't, but it's going to work better with the one that um, is the one specifically tuned to that bike, yeah. I mean, that, that, so that means tread design as well. Obviously, that's going to be a street-biased tire. Yeah, and it's, the tread design is the same, but uh, there's some subtle differences in the, in the carcass construction. As the tire wears, it changes. You know, the, the knobs sure. start to get round off. I mean, I just read a while ago about um, uh, people who race motocross and how they'll mm-hmm. change their tires after one run just because they might lose that sharp edge off their tire. If that oh, little sure. bit makes a difference, and I'm, obviously these guys are racers, but if that little bit makes a difference, then we have to fully expect that our tire is going to be different from the day we put it on to the day we take it off. Oh, sure. Well, and that's what's... Uh, um the challenge is to build a tire that works good from new to the end. And on street tires, you know, the tread pattern's not going to change as much. You know, um, there is something that happens with tires. And this is sometimes, you know, you kind of maybe chuckle or shake your head a little bit with folks will talk about how, oh, I got this, you know, ridiculous amount of miles out of my tire. And you look at the tire and there is no tread left whatsoever. There's no, there's no wear bars, but, um, but, the grip really goes away as the tire wears down. Now, in the dirt tires, uh, you know, because you're counting on the, the sharp edge of the knobs to get the bite. But on a street tire, it's the rubber and the heat in the rubber. So when the tire works, you know, as it goes from loaded to unloaded shape and, you know, everything's squirming and working together, you're building up heat. And the depth of the tread holds that heat. So, and that's how the tire produces grip, uh, you know, with the rubber gets, gets warmed up and starts to work. But the less rubber you have on the tire, the less heat you're going to build up and the less heat it'll retain. So you might think you're getting, oh, I got, you know, X number of ridiculous amount of miles out of my tire, but you're really compromising your safety and the grip level because there just isn't enough rubber to, one, to build the heat and then also to retain it. So that is a factor, and so that's why it is important to wear or start to watch uh, the tread wear indicators and make sure you don't run the tires down too far. I mean, actually, when you get to the tread wear indicators, there's not much rubber there, uh, you know, as far as working up heat and retaining heat. Certainly, there's rubber there that you're not going to be into the cords to be a safety issue, but you're certainly diminishing the grip level. Uh, the more the tire wears down, for sure. And again, that's the challenge to building a good tire is one that that tries to 
minimize that difference between first to last mile. And that's something we concentrate on for sure. You know, it's interesting you bring up heat because I think for most people, you, when you think of heat, you think it's something you don't want. But when in the motorcycle tire, we do want a certain amount of it. But you mentioned to me before about about running too low of pressures and what that does sure. to us for heat. Yeah, it does. Because think about a tire, um, you know, tires round when you're, we're just sitting here looking at one on the shelf. But when it's on the motorcycle on the ground, there's the unloaded side of the tire at the top of the wheel and the loaded side on the bottom. And, of course, the tire uh, flexes. So each time that wheel rotates, um, you know, it's flexing, going from loaded to unloaded shape. So there's a lot of flexing going on. So the less tire pressure you have or the less air pressure in the tire, the more flex you're going to get. The more flex you're going to get is the more heat builds up. And, of course, the more heat builds up to the point of starting to deteriorate, that, yeah, that can definitely accelerate tire wear. And I think sometimes that... You know, particularly in the dual sport tires, you know, I, I run into occasionally guys that are, you know, used to riding dirt bikes and, a, you know, a 275-pound dirt bike, you know, even though it might have the same size front tire as your uh, F800 GS BMW, but the tire pressure requirements are quite different. So uh, let's say you get off your 450 enduro bike and you get on your 800 GS and, well, I used to run 15 PSI in my 450, so I'll put that in my GS. Well, yeah, that's, you know, it might get some decent off-road traction, but you're probably going to bend some rims and flat spot or uh, pinch flat some tires and uh, also overheat it and premature wear. So, yeah, definitely air pressure has a big effect on wear. And, and could that be part of um, the reasons you see some people post that they've, you know, the tires, that the knobs have actually started to come off? Could it be that? Are we running up too much heat? Yeah, there's a couple things. You know, one, the the deeper the knobs, why the less speed rating it has. Um, so, and let's say let's take the TKC80 for example. That's the tire I know best. That's a that's a 99 mile an hour tire in most sizes for the adventure bikes. So, what that means is the tire will carry its load rating at for um, 99 miles an hour for a continuous hour um, safely, but. And that's at the proper inflation pressure. But let's say you're running instead of, uh, let's say, 35 PSI, you're running uh, 20 PSI. So that load rating and the speed rating dropped considerably. But on a modern uh, adventure bike, we know they're capable of cruising at, you know, 80 miles an hour down the interstate. No problem whatsoever. But uh, let's say you're running 20 PSI and you've got your panniers on with some some luggage and stuff uh, yeah you could definitely be overheating that tire and that could lead to breakdown as well uh and then of course the speed itself you know because you've got a you know let's say i hate to say unattached but you've got a a, a chunk of rubber hanging out there that yeah there's a point where centrifugal force is going to start working on those uh particularly if the tire is overheated from uh under inflation and running too fast that, yeah, there's a point where things might start to, to happen, I guess. When you said the, to... the load rating or the speed rating rather was 99 miles per hour for one hour, mm-hmm. is that what it is for one hour? That's what it's rated for? Yeah, that's how they do it. I think with speed ratings on tires, they're tested to say, you know, if it's a, you know, 149 mile an hour tire, it will carry this load for, um, this speed for one hour continuous. So. Mm. 
What about compounds when we're looking at it? I mean, obviously, tread patterns going to make all the difference, in particular with off-road riding. I mean, definitely on-road, but I think on-road, you'll, you'll get away with a lot. But what about compounds? Mm-hmm. Do tire compounds change from one tire to the next? When you're looking at, for instance, a TKC80 to a 70 in, in your field or in your company, sure. rather, um, are there compound differences? Yes. Yeah. And uh, how that works is, you know, we're working on compound families all the time. And we have, and I'm sure other companies have their own marketing name for it. We call ours Rain Grip. And that was a, a real high silica compound that we introduced with the uh, the Road Attack 2 Evo and the Trail Attack 2. And so then we've carried that compound family over to the 70s. So the compound on the Trail Attack 2 and the 70 are virtually the same. And when we talk about silica, you know, there's a lot of, again, I'm not a chemist or an engineer, but there's a lot of different things that go into tires to make up the rubber compound of polymers and uh, carbon black and silica and, you know, natural rubber and synthetic rubbers and things like that. And silica is kind of a, um, the easiest way to explain it's like a molecular level spacer that kind of spaces out the rubber molecules that lets them get a better hold of the imperfections of the road. So we're always going, you know, we're always constantly evolving with compounds, but we kind of have a family in this case, the, for us, it's the um, the rain grip family, and uh, that in particular um, is a high silica uh, compound, and that'll carry over. But of course, as a new tire line comes out, there's subtle changes and subtle improvements, or let's say uh, various formulas. Like let's okay, our Sport Attack Three and Road Attack Three are both rain grip compounds. But in the Road Attack 3, that's more of a sport touring tire, it's a bit more durable, whereas the Sport Attack 3, you know, it's more about ultimate grip, not so much longevity like you'd have on a sport touring tire. So it's a compound family with subtleties between the, the tires. Now, the TKC80, that's its own deal because that's a bias-type tire, and so we don't use the same compounds that we do on uh, – on the radial tires, but the TKC80 definitely has evolved over the years as far as compound and construction uh, things. When you make a compound stickier, like you're saying, more silica in it, does it increase mm-hmm. the wear on it? Well, silica does tend to make the tires wear better, which is a great benefit because you get the better grip, cold weather grip, and wet weather grip, and it does actually last longer. Uh, the downside with too much silica in a tire is that they maybe don't hold up to heat as well, which isn't so much a problem for uh, in the adventure world or dual sport tires, but in hypersport bikes, yeah, if you had a tire that's maybe too heavy on silica uh, on a track day situation with, a let's say, a 1,000cc bike, yeah, that tire might tend to overheat or start to feel greasy towards the end of a session, so... Are these secret sauces that you don't give out the uh, the combinations of for the uh, like the, <laughs> the rain grip, for instance? You know, like they, I think it's McDonald's with their secret sauce. Yeah, yeah, most likely. So, yeah, it's not something I've ever been exposed to the the ins and outs. You know, you don't have we, that clearance level. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What the secret sauce? Yeah. But we're we're talking about tread patterns. So tread patterns obviously huge for us, right? To look at it in mm-hmm. particular when sure. you're headed for dirt. But for street, then obviously compounds can make a really big difference. Now, my question oh, sure. to you is, as a general consumer, how do you know one compound from the next? Well, you can mostly by the the category of the tire. So, like, um, well, we talked a little bit about 
uh, hypersport tires versus uh, sport touring tires, and that that kind of that is your tip off of to what is this a harder compound or a softer compound tire? So when we say this is a hypersport category tire, then the consumer needs to know or should know that this is going to be a softer, stickier tire than the same company's sport touring tire. The sport touring tire is meant more for for touring, so it's going to be a longer wearing. Therefore, would be a uh, hate to say harder, but a different compound that's more durable, so it won't produce the same level of grip as, let's say, that hypersport tire. Now, having said that, touring tires, uh, sport touring tires, have reached such a level of performance that a lot of folks do run sport touring tires on sport bikes because they do perform pretty. Uh, amazingly and still wear really well so but there is no like let's say in our uh, uh, road attack three line for instance you know we don't say well this is a hard compound because no it's a sport touring tire you know we don't say now if you're talking race tires yeah they'll have soft medium hard tires generally so you can tune for track conditions but in consumer tires for street use it's more of a is this a hyper sport tire or is this a sport touring tire or an adventure tire. So that's important. Seeing what, what the marketing is pointing it towards gives you an idea of the of what yes. compound has been used for it. And obviously yeah. these are, this is ideas with companies that are, uh, I want to say, well, reputable, I guess, really. I mean, you, I guess you really want to sure. deal with a company that, you know, I know you're biased for Continental, obviously, because you work there, sure. but you'd be really mm-hmm. wise to stay away from a, a tire that you don't know. I and mean, wouldn't that be right? Because you have no idea what the compound is. Yeah, I think so. I think you're, and the, it's, there are so many good tires out there, you know, from all the the, the premium com- companies, you know, like ourselves and, you know, other folks, uh, you know, like Michelin, Dunlop, Metzler, Pirelli, everybody makes a good tire. Um, I, I sometimes say tires are like shoes. You kind of got to try them on and, you know, walk in them for a little bit to see if this is the one you like. And and tires are that way, too. But, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. But, but then you're also starting to see some tires that maybe aren't such name brands. And, yeah, you know, you, you're not not as sure as what you're going to get, I guess. Is there any way to tell, you know, by feeling the tire, I'm thinking, you know, for compound wise, by squishing the tire, pushing a coin into it or something that you could tell how soft or how durable the compound is? Not, not really. If you had a, a durometer, which is a little instrument with a little needle, you could, you could get a durometer reading and that could give you some clue, I, I think, but, but not, but durometers are kind of hard to use and really get a, uh, an accurate reading, but uh, but I'm not sure folks carry a durometer around and test tires in the store. But but that would probably be the best way because um, you know and the tire is going to rack different when it gets warmed up versus sitting on the shelf cold too. So that's not always a good um, indication. So I used to work with suspension. You know, a lot of times folks bounce the 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 bike or the race car or whatever, and it's like, well. The actual speed that shock is going to move when it hits a bump is you, you can't push it, you know, by hand fast enough to really tell much anything. You right. can kind of get an idea of the of the bleed circuit, but what's going to happen when the you know really happens, you can't. So, and I think that's somewhat true with tires. So. So just as a, a recap, then tread design, in particular, if you're looking for an adventure tire or a dual sport tire, tread design is going to be probably the first thing you should be looking at. Um, yeah. It, that, and then taking into account also how the tire is marketed. If they're telling you it's it's for this, then you might want to pay attention to that because obviously the compounds have been made for that. The tread design has been made for that. Sure. Um, but nothing's yep. going to beat um, a knobby if you're looking for real dirt traction. Is that is that the right way to look at it? That's yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, you need if you're looking for 
if you're taking one of these big adventure bikes off-road, you really need some open tread design. And a, a tread design that's closed, yeah, might give you some better mileage, but it's not going to give you that off-road traction that you're probably looking for. Hey, Jeff, thank you very much. I really appreciate you speaking with me. I'm always happy to talk tires with you. It's always a good time. Oh, no problem. I, uh, talking about tires and motorcycles, is uh, that's my favorite thing. So glad to do it. I've been speaking with Jeff Reed from Continental Tires in the United States. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more. We've got David from Best Rest talking about his bead breaker and give us some tips on changing tires. Stay with us. in the vicinity of Mount Rainier. An air search was immediately organized to locate the downed plane. Among the many service and private flyers who participated in this search was Mr. Kenneth Arnold, a businessman of Boise, Idaho, a veteran pilot in forest fire control, a man with six years experience flying over the rugged terrain in and around Mount Rainier. Yesterday morning, we spoke to Mr. Arnold over the phone. We asked him to repeat for us in his own words, what we saw in the sky over Mount Rainier on June 24th, 1947. We recorded what he said, and we're going to play it for you now. Motobird Adventures is run by Kerry Doherty, and Kerry Doherty built Motobird Adventures to be a motorcycle experience for women by women. And they've got some incredible adventures planned for this year. She has stuff planned right from May through October. And you have to drop by the website. It's www.motobirdadventures.com. Drop by and see what she's got. If you're a woman, you want to go out on a woman-only trip, or if you have a significant other you want to send on a trip, you want to buy her a gift, or maybe you know somebody, pass this information around because Kerry looks like she's got a, a good thing going there. And don't forget, Kerry did her own trip. She took her KLR 650 uh, around the states there, 19 states and Baja, Mexico, 10,000 miles. So she's an explorer. She's an adventurer. And um, she's out there doing these trips for other people who want to experience this and, and want the support of having someone organize it for them. And even just going out with a, a group of people that are, you know, sort of all like-minded. Trip by the website, motobirdadventures.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with her, let her know you that you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. And IMS Products, maker of, well, a bunch of racing things, fueling systems, foot pegs, shift levers, coolant recovery, all kinds of things for um, racing bikes, but also for us adventure bikes now, or adventure riders now for our adventure bikes with their ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs. These are some really, really nice foot pegs for your bike. But hey, let's look at this. I mean, uh, you know, and I've said this before, um, pegs aren't just something to look at. They're not something that uh, is designed on a whim. 
It takes a lot to design a quality foot peg. IMS has done it. I'm running with their foot pegs now and I absolutely love them. As a matter of fact, I've just been riding more now because it's warming up. And I still, even though I've been riding with them for a long time now, I still get on them and appreciate the fact that they give me this wider stance, this better feel and better control for the bike. And of course, I really appreciate them when I drop the bike down and they get slammed against a rock. And when I pick the bike back up, the pegs look exactly the same as they did before. Cast certified stainless steel manufacturing process. I mean, let's face it, IMS makes and has made since 1976 race quality parts. Well, that's what you're getting when you're buying IMS pegs. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, definitely mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And of course, that goes for everybody here that's advertising the show because that's what makes the show possible. www.imsproducts.com. Since we were talking about tires on this episode, we wanted to tie something else in. So we figured, well, we may as well get somebody in who gets really excited about flat tires. David Peterson from Best Rest Products has been tinkering in his shop uh, for years now, trying to invent things to sort of help make life better for us motorcyclists. In fact, he's worked on, I think it's over 40 inventions. Some didn't make it, some no longer produced, and some that are found in most serious riders' kits. And no, he hasn't invented a way to hide your purchase of your new motorcycle from your significant other, but instead he's been working on inventing lots of tools and products, including his well-known cycle pump. But today we're going to talk about his bead breaker, and as well we're going to extract some tips from him about uh, tire changing, making it less painful. Hi, I'm David Peterson, owner of Best Rest Products, and I make motorcycle stuff. I invent stuff for motorcycles because that's what I do. That's who I am. I'm a motorcycle rider. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. I should be saying welcome back. I mean, it's been a while, but we've had you on here before. Yeah, we did. I think it's been about a year. And today what we're talking about is your tire iron bead breaker, which we're going to talk about the intricacies of that. And But first of all, you, you mentioned that you're inventing stuff. You've got about 25 um, active inventions right now? Right. Um, I went through a list and, you know, there's 35 or 40 things that I've invented. Some of them uh, have, uh, you know, run their course and we're no longer manufacturing them, but... Uh, I got a lot of stuff that I've come up with and usually it's a result of a problem that I have or something I see needs to be fixed. So I come up with a common sense uh, solution that nobody's thought of before. What uh, schooling do you take to become an inventor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Uh, I studied electrical engineering in college, but clearly that wasn't my gifting. Uh, I just had a good mechanical aptitude Uh, For many years, I ran a commercial cabinet shop, which allowed me to work in uh, woods, but it it, uh, allowed me to understand how things interreact and, you know, working with the equipment and the machinery. And I think that's something that my father taught me because that was his trade also. And I was able to translate uh, the ability to draft and design and, and, you know, problem solve from, from my formative years. Did you do a lot of that with the cabinet making, uh, come up with oh, yeah. different ideas, the things that haven't been done before? Yeah, things that, uh, you know, met the customer's needs, uh, you know, solving all sorts of different issues, working in 
different dimensions and, and being able, I think the biggest thing is being able to put it down on paper and have it make sense. Uh, one of the inspirations I took was from John Browning, who, you know, was a famous gun designer and he used to sit in a coffee shop and drink coffee and, and uh, a pair of scissors and a piece of paper and cut things out and then see how they went together. And I've often done that, you know, you make a full size prototype, uh, mechanically work out those pieces uh, on a kitchen table, seeing how they work. Will this work? Will this not work? How does it not work? And then being stubborn enough to come up with a solution. A lot of trial and error, Pro- probably more trial and error than anything else. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of, a lot of things that uh, just through persistence worked out. There's been other things that I've, uh, you know, I've, pulled out and tried to do and couldn't make it work and pulled it out later and couldn't make it work. And maybe about the sixth or seventh time I come up with a solution, but there's also items that, you know, I never have been able to come up with a good resolution and a good resolution means, uh, that a, it works, uh, B it's, uh, marketable, uh, C there's, there's a need for it. Customers actually need it. And D, you know, what are the costs? If you come up with a solution to a problem and it's cost prohibitive, uh, it's not going to do any good. If it's a problem that just I have and I don't think that it's commercially viable, then it doesn't make sense to chase after that illusion. You have to be practical when it comes to inventing things. But this is how you started as well. That's what Bestress is formed on. It was a backrest, wasn't it? Right. That was the first product, and it was something that I made for my wife to make her comfortable on the back of our BMW. And, and uh, you know, other people saw it and said, hey, could you make one for me? And and I took the, the initial design and built on it uh, and made it into something that we uh, could make uh, and produce in quantity and got a patent on that, and we sold a bunch of them. What's been a total bomb? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say there's total bombs, but uh, one of the things I, I worked with was, uh, <laughs> oh, you'll like this. Uh, we called it Holland Ash. And we actually had a, had a trade name for it, Holland Ash. And it was an inspiration from a magazine ad that I saw, which was a, a funeral uh, uh, tricycle that hauled somebody's coffin. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of people get cremated these days. So let's come up with a a cremated remains dispenser that you can mount on the back of your bike. You take your your dearly beloved on that last road trip. And as you get to his favorite spot at 50 miles an hour, you hit a button and out the back his ashes spew. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. There's a fundamental problem with with this idea. First of all, you're saying his. It could be a her, well, his or whatever. <laughs> but I don't think that was the reason this 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 product didn't fly. Well, there were some logistical issues. One of them would be perhaps some legal issues uh, of spreading remains on the highway. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, in testing with non-cremated remains, we discovered that the uh, the cloud of Ash was not conducive to a bunch of guys riding behind uh, as they got covered. So uh, we put that one on the shelf. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's good to know that that all uh, all inventions don't turn out beautiful. And um, also, that, that couldn't have been very complicated to do. Well, it was it was a container with a funnel and a, an electric motor with a, a fan to disperse. So the, the mechanics of it were not that hard. But, uh, you know, figuring out the the uh, 
marketing of it might have been been difficult. A lot of people would have enjoyed it, but uh, maybe as a talking point. But you know, we wouldn't have made any money on it, so it went on the shelf. Don't you have Another family that be, shakes their head when you, they look at something like that? You oh, say, yeah. oh, this is where this is what I'm inventing and working. They're thinking, David, what are you wasting your time on this for? You know, these things come to me in the middle of the night, Jim, and I just can't help myself. I'm like a... They're called dreams. I'm like a, You're supposed to let them go. <laughs> yeah, like a kid in a candy shop or, or, you know, I was probably the problem child in school. I don't know. Uh, another thing we had was a, a trail marker. Uh, you know, I've been on rides where you're riding with buddies and you're on these narrow tight trails and you come to a crossroads and typically, you know, you do a stagger, wait for your buddy and then he catches up and the next guy catches up and so on. But I've, I've gotten groups, uh, separated that way. So we, we practiced some stuff with a, a chalk dispenser that would mark the trail and it worked, uh, under some conditions, but when things were wet, the dispenser got clogged up and, uh, you know, so you give it a try, you do some initial, uh, design, you, you make it cheap and, and simple and then see how it works before you put it into production. Well, so, the, the, the tire iron bead breakers a little more complicated than that. I mean, you, you've got, um, several, uh, levers here. Well, one big lever, I guess. Well, why don't you describe it? Well, um, let's start with the initial, uh, need. The need was I'm out there on my motorcycle riding on the Continental Divide and I'm thinking about, you know, what do I do if I have this? What do I do if I have that? And I realized that if I had to change a tire, um, I can do the spooning, but I can't break the bead. And, you know, some guys say, well, you take one wheel off and you put, put it on the ground and, and then the bike's standing up by itself. And that might be an urban myth, but really it's, it's largely theoretical because most people can't do it. Most people have never done it. They've heard it's been done, but I challenge uh, whoever's listening to go out and try it themselves and not just try it on a concrete surface, but try it on some uh, uh, trail or by the side of the road. You're talking about using the side stand, putting it up on the center stand, using the side stand to break the bead. Yeah. Or the center stand, you know, there's variations to that. And I ride alone a lot, so I need to be able to solve this uh, on my own. So I started thinking, what are the components of a bead breaker? And back here at home, what I would do for a bead breaker is I would stick a two by four under the bumper of my truck, lay the wheel on the ground, and then use a, a short piece of wood between that big two by four and the sidewall, and I would break it that way. And when you break that down, no pun intended, but when you break down that process, what you're doing is using a lever and some type of vertical arm and uh, to carry the mechanical motion. And then you need something that acts as a plunger to press down on the sidewall. So that's the concept. And then I thought, well, how do I make this simple? Because there's other bead breakers out there. Um, and the simple part of it, or, or perhaps the brilliant inspiration is uh, using the tire irons as part of the device that breaks the bead. So the bead breaker consists of an L and on each side of the L there's a socket for a tire iron to fit into. And those tire irons have holes in them, uh, pivoting holes. And then you have a lever and the tire iron fits in one end of the leather and the other end of the lever uh, fits into one of the pins of the vertical tire iron. And then the final component is the plunger. 
which has to be able to move back and forth on that lever to accommodate the size of your tire and the circumference and things like that. So when uh, you put all that together, you got this kind of strange looking device, um, but it's brilliantly simple in the sense that once you've broken the bead, then half of the components are then used to spoon your tire. And uh, it all fits into a very small pouch and you can take it anywhere and, you know, carry it on the bike. Uh, the tire iron bead breaker is a departure from, you know, most bead breakers that that you buy at Harbor Freight or somewhere else. You know, those are for the garage and they have their place. But this is something you can take with you on the road. So if you're going to Alaska or, you know, you're going to South America or you're going to, you know, the Black Hills and you need to change your tires on the road, you've got everything you need in that kit. Basically, it's a tire shop in a pouch. Yeah, you're only looking about, what, three pounds, something like that? Uh, it's less than that. It, it's uh, 30, 35 and change, I think, ounces. Um, and there's a few components in there that add a little weight. We put a bottle of uh, uh, mounting fluid called bead goop. It's basically a, a, a soap solution, special soap solution that makes things slippery so the beads will slide off the tire. And then when that dries, it becomes tacky so the sidewalls adhere to the rim. Uh, we used to put in rim protectors, but we discontinued that. Uh, most people didn't use them. And we put in a valve stem tool so you can take out the core and, uh, you know, remove the core so that you can deflate the tire. And, uh, you know, we're always trying to think of what does a guy need when he's on the trail. And these are the, the basic components that you need to change your tire, whether you're in your garage or you're out in the, in the middle of the woods. And the nice thing is you're going to be carrying tire irons with you anyway. So some of that bulk, you're already, I mean, really, there's only just a few components that you're carrying extra with this to make up the, the bead breaker itself. And maybe maybe some people carry two irons. This is three. Three is a lot more convenient than two. What length irons are they? They're eight and a half. And, uh, you know, what I found is that if you need a tire iron longer than that, you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah. Uh, I change a lot of tires uh, and, you know, I've done everything from BMW K12 LTs to my KTM trail bike. Um, and I found that if you're struggling with the tire iron, trying to spoon the tire on or off, then it's a technique issue. And the two things that most people run afoul of are uh, properly lubricating the rubber sidewall of the tire or the bead and lubricating the rim. That's number one. The second one is you need to crush that tire down so that you can uh, get the tire bead into the well of the rim. And if you're not getting into the well of the rim, that doesn't give you working room on the opposite side of the tire. And those two items are the two biggest Achilles heels for anybody that's trying to change tires. And when you're saying lube the, the beads, you're talking on and off, taking the tire on and off. Right. Both, both on and off. And, you know, some people don't understand where you're supposed to lube. Uh, there's an easy rule of thumb, and that is anytime the rubber is moving over the rim, whatever direction it's going, that tells you which side of the tire bead you need to lube. So when you're spooning off the first side of the first uh, tire bead, you need to be lubing the top side of the tire. And then when you uh, when you take off the second 
sidewall, in other words, the tire's halfway on the rim, you need to be lubing the inside of that tire bead inside the tire. And when you put the tire back on, you need to lubricate the, the outside of the bead where the tire slips over the rim. And finally, lube the inside of the, the second bead where it slides over. So, you know, you just need to think, where am I going to have a friction point? Uh, and, you know, when you're lubing, uh, you can go overboard. But the truth of it is that uh, more lube is better. It just makes the, the whole process go easier. Yeah, far better more than less. Absolutely. I've seen guys try to do it with dry tires, and they just struggle. It's just, it's really hard. And even if you don't use our bead goop, you know, you could use dish soap. You could use, uh, you know, any kind of liquid solution from hand cream to, to uh, you know, bacon fat. It doesn't really matter. As long as it's wet, it'll help that rubber slide over that rim. Bacon fat, that's the first I've heard for that one. But what, what about WD-40? Well, you can. Uh, WD-40 is slippery. It does make the rubber slippery. But WD-40 is a penetrant in a petroleum product. And mixing that with rubber tires may not be in your best interest. If that's all you have, then by all means use it. And if, quite frankly, if I know that I'm going to take a set of tires and throw them away because they're no good and I'm out of bead goop here at home because it's all sitting at the shop, then I'll use a can of WD-40. But uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as a, as a, a go-to method. I, I think there's better options and something you want to use something that's not going to potentially attack the, uh, the rubber. Yeah, I've, I've thought the same thing for years, and all kinds of people go on about the WD-40, and finally I tried it, and it, and it works really, really well. It does, um, but I agree that, uh, that it's, it's going to end up, or it could potentially end up affecting the tire itself. So, Well, and the other thing, too, is that ideally what you want this lube to do is to be slippery when you're using it, and then when you're done using it, uh, when the process is done, it, it still shouldn't be slippery. Um, you want the sidewalls to adhere to the metal rim. Mm -hmm. And I have a question in my mind whether or not that rim is still going to be slipping against the rubber once the tire's on. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with tr uh, high-performance uh, trail bikes or even some big uh, adventure bikes, they have rim locks to prevent that tire from spinning on the rim. Uh, if you have bead goop on there, that thing is basically glued in place. You can break that glue bead when you break the bead, but uh, you don't want the whole thing to be spinning. Or there's, if you had a tube inside, you might tear the tube right off of the stem. So, so what's the deal with the bead goop? Then it, it's a lubricant. When you put it on, then it dries tacky. Right. It it uh, evaporates. It is a technically a soap solution. That stuff is so slippery that when you when you've done your your uh, you know, lubing, and you, if you get that stuff on your hands, you can't hang on to the tire iron, so you just keep slipping out of your hands. Mm -hmm. So you have to wipe them off. And after a period of, I don't know, five or ten minutes, and that depends on how warm it is, you know, if the sun's shining, that stuff becomes tacky, and it it creates a, uh, a light uh, cement-like bond between the rubber and the rim. Um, it is water-soluble, so you could you know, hit it with water and it would sweeten up again. Uh, in fact, you could even dilute it and use it that way. Or if your goop starts to get a little bit uh, tacky, then put a little water on it. That'll help things. 
And do you you don't make this goop? You're 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 getting it and packaging it. Right, we're getting it in bulk, and then we put it in the smaller packages. Is it the same stuff they use on car tires? Um, yeah, they could use it on car tires. We actually get this stuff from the trucking industry. It's under a different brand name, right. but uh, we get it, uh, and we repackage what we need, and uh, it's under a different name. But the chemical composition is basically the same. Right. The rim protectors, you, you said you don't include them anymore. You're not finding a need for them, especially with all the black rims out there nowadays? Yeah. Well, uh, for every 10 bead breakers that go out the door, eight guys don't use the rim protectors. There's there's two guys that do. So in the instructions, we say, hey, listen, if you're concerned about your, your rims, then uh, get a set of rim protectors or a penny tech way of doing it is go out to the garden and find an old hose, cut some eight to 10 inch lengths uh, and then take and slit them down the middle. And what you end up with is something that you can slip over your rim and uh, that hose protects the finish of the rim uh, from the tire iron as you're doing the spooning. Ooh, very nice. I'm going to have to try that. I've always used a shop rag with, you know, limited success. It does what I need it to. I'm not all that fussed about it, but that's a good idea. I'll have to try that. Yeah. Or if you had, uh, if you had a siphon hose in your, in your uh, kit and you decided that at that moment in time, your rims are more important than the ability to siphon gas, you could always take a piece of plastic or vinyl tubing and slit it and do exactly the same thing. Oh, I like that. As far as the, the, the bead breaker itself goes, when you assemble it, it's got a bunch of different attachments. I've never used one before, but I've seen it um, used. It's got a bunch of uh, different settings on it or holes, I guess, that you can set it to to match your different size wheels. So it basically should do, I'm, I'm guessing, all the motorcycle tires, front and rear? Everyone that I've run into, um, and, you know, the size of the circumference of the tire or the, the bulk of the tire, that determines uh, where you place your pins, and after you've done one tire, like say you do your front tire, it's going to have a, a closer, smaller uh, uh, assembled size. If you do the rear tire, you have to move up a notch in the fittings, and it'll adjust for the length and the height to allow for that. So uh, it'll it'll fit almost all tires that I've ever seen. Uh, the uh, it won't do uh, quad tires, you know, off of a ATV because they have a solid uh, rim. There's no spoke holes. But any any bike that has a uh, either spokes or cast, as long as that vertical piece can fit up between, then you can uh, you can use the bead breaker. And ostensibly, that is the toughest part of changing the tire when you're on the back road somewhere is breaking the bead. Most times, it is um, for most people. My uh, you know, when I look at the process, breaking the bead is, for me, because I've done it so many times as a snap, I think the hardest thing that people have is uh, when they're putting the tire back on, the final bead back on, uh, they really seem to struggle with that. And that's because they're not crushing that sidewall down uh, where their knees are. And, and typically the posture that I use is I'm, I have this tire laying on the ground and I'm leaning over the hub with my belly button and my knees are on the closest part of the bead and I'm squishing that down. And then I'm working on the far side. And if that bead is not broken down or crushed underneath your knees, I say crushed, this isn't a damaging thing, this is a term, but, but it's squished down together like 
taking your, your, your hand and making a big C to where your index and your fingers touch. That's crushing the bead down. If you don't do that, then that upper bead will slip up into the rim higher, and now you don't have enough room on the far side. So that's that's where most people struggle and, and flounder and get red in the face. But once they understand that, uh, then it goes well. Here, here's another tip, Jim, when, when people are doing that, and especially on these real stiff tires like the Heidenau uh, tires or maybe a Moto Z, uh, some people don't physically have the weight to crush that bead down. So uh, you can use zip ties to squish those tires. And we did a video showing our moto zips, which are those real heavy-duty zip ties. And by by using two or three of those, you use the power of the zip tie uh, to squish those sidewalls down to where the two beads will touch. And then you can be assured that when you're working on the far side, you've got plenty of working room. Mm, that's a good tip. You got any other tips for changing tires while we're talking about this? Yeah. Uh, do it at home before you head out in the field. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of guys buy stuff at the last minute. They figure uh, that they'll they'll solve the problem when they get there. But when they get there, either the mosquitoes are biting them or the sun is beating down or it's raining or whatever the circumstances are. And that's not when you begin your learning curve. Yeah. Even just the stress uh, of, of something going wrong because you're on a trip and maybe you got people waiting and stress can really put the edge on. Right. Um, and I've had that happen myself where I've gotten in a hurry. You know, I've got 10 guys waiting and I'm trying to change either my tire or, you know, one of our guys' tires. Um, take your time and do it right. Otherwise, you're going to be doing it again. So um, get the learning curve down. Do, do it once at home so you got the process. You know, it, you can't go out and learn how to drive a motor or ride a motorcycle, drive a car the first time out. You got to spend a little time and then you're comfortable and you're proficient. And you're probably one of those guys who likes to change tires. So when somebody has a flat tire, you're right in there. <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> okay, so then uh, the tip that I would throw in then is, is if you're going to go ride, go ride somewhere, go with David. <laughs> well, I, I used to. I mean, I've seen myself literally go in there and push the guy over on the side and say, "Get out of the way! I'm in a hurry. Let me take care of this." <laughs> um, but I've since. Uh, 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 gotten past that and now I just sit there and and uh, watch and I give a few pointers. Uh, uh, I do ride with one friend who on the on the Idaho BDR he had three flats and uh, the last one was in a parking lot in uh, Mountain Home, Utah and we were trying to get on the road and the sun was coming up and it was going to be a hot one and I was just about to the point of, of doing that pushing him on the ground and, and yet he still got it but uh, uh, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't want to catch everybody's fish for him. You got to let him fish for themselves. <laughs> true. Uh, David, thank you very much. You're welcome, Jim. Well, that was David Peterson, head inventor and probably chief bottle washer and capware. What do they call it? Chief, chief chef, chief. I can't remember. Am I getting old? Chief Cook and Bottle Washer, that's it. Wow, where'd that go?
I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. A special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. I want to remind you about the transcripts that we're doing now. As of uh, January 2018, we've got transcripts on all of our episodes. You can go and read these episodes that you're listening to. You can check back on things that you're wondering about. Maybe you didn't catch something that was said. Um, you can go back there, and there's quite a bit of work goes into doing them to try and make sure they're accurate. I'm surprised how much work that is actually put into it, just to make sure that all the words have been identified properly. Anyway, drop by the website, check it out. We also have other things in our show notes, photographs, different things like that. There's a search button also on the website. All of our episodes are there for you to listen to. So go ahead, search for something you're interested in. Um, They're all tagged appropriately and you'll be able to find something that uh, I'm sure covers a topic that you may be wondering about. Don't forget about our Raw show. That comes out once a month. It's a separate show. You need to subscribe separately. It's roundtable talks about motorcycle travel and anything else across our mind, uh, myself and uh, a group of others, five others. So drop by and check that out. If you like what we're doing, you want to help out. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support to help make it work. So if you'd like to drop by and click on our support tab, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker for your motorcycle. Anything $50 or more will get you a mention on our raw show, www.adventureriderradio.com. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hello, this is Mike. And I'm Alana. From Going the Distance, a honeymoon adventure. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 